3: And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the ANPs from AOPA.
2: On Ask the ANPs, we uh, take your toughest maintenance questions, and uh, occasionally we actually come up with good <laughs> answers. So if you have a question, Email us at podcasts at AOPA.org for a chance to get on the show. Please
4: follow or subscribe to be alerted when a new show comes out so you don't miss an episode of
2: all those almost right answers. (laughs) And if you'd like to get on our uh, email list, easiest way is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And... uh, Bot will ask you for your email address and your name and put you on our mailing list for our uh, newsletter and other good stuff. We've been sending out a lot of good stuff lately. Again, uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on our list.
4: So what is some of this all cool stuff that we've been sending out lately?
3: Yeah, any Christmas presents in there?
4: (laughs) Yeah, like... Valves
3: or something maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wanted a valve for Christmas. <laughs> I didn't get it though.
2: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, we did a lot of stuff on the first of January. We, we we launched a whole new website for the company. It looks a lot more professional than the old one, and
3: with updated we, um, pictures, so you can see what we look
4: like really. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And, uh, Does anybody uh, really want
4: to see those pictures? It, it, oh, I,
2: we you know, it was it was amazing because we, we put together the, the, the team photos and, and bios. And there mm-hmm. were 43 people. I didn't know I had that many people working. For.
3: <laughs> Don't you pay attention to payroll? That well, was a Mike. shock. Well, <laughs> it's a great crew, too. It's really fun yeah, to really. see everybody else. So it's at the really company. an
2: amazing team that we built. But uh, we, we also... Um, Launched our officially launched our borescope initiative, and released a um, a video a training course. It's about a thirty five minute uh, video training course for A and P's and for uh, maintenance involved owners who want to learn how to do uh, a proper borescope inspection. We created a a very specific protocol for exactly what images to take in what order and. We launched a a, a Borescope image repository on our platform, which is available free to anybody who wants to use it, for uploading images and archiving them and making it easy to compare current images with the previous inspections and and so on. released a a checklist uh, for um, uh, mechanics and owners who are doing Borescope inspections to remind them what photos to take of each cylinder in what order and so on, and how to name the files uh, if they want to uh, bulk upload them to the uh, borescope repository, the image repository. So lots of stuff. I actually, I watched the preview of
3: the video. Dave Pasquale does a wonderful job. He's got a great camera too. It's really sharp and he's in his hangar and, showing you how he's using the borescope and he's got the big screen um, computer right there. So you can see the images that, that he's recording with the borescope and you can see the snaps that he's getting. And I just watched 10 minutes. It's a 35 minute video and I learned several things and I've been using a borescope for over 10 years. So it's, it's really well done. Really yeah. interesting.
2: Dave, Dave is has done some just absolutely remarkable work, innovative work in that, we're trying to spread the gospel of Dave <laughs> both both in the area of, of boroscopy, where where he's he's really uh, reduced it to a science, I think, and also uh, he was kind of did a lot of pioneering work on lapping valves in place. So uh, Dave is an amazing guy, and just it, we're very privileged to have him as part of the savvy team.
4: I'm just now looking at the new website, first time. Mm-hmm. You know, typical me, don't ever prepare. Uh, <laughs> so, and yeah, I, this is the first time I've actually seen some of these people's faces. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. And some yeah. of us look a lot older than the last time I've
0: seen some Yeah, we, you know, we,
2: one of the, one of the big challenges in getting this website together was to, to get 43 people to, to give us headshots for the, for the about us page. And, uh, we, we had, uh, one of our account managers who, uh, who's, who I will leave, who will remain nameless. <laughs> I can't
3: imagine who. <laughs>
2: who, um, who, who's, he's, I don't know, he's probably close to 60. <laughs> and, uh, He sent us his graduation photo from Embry Riddle, you know, (laughs) when he was about five. That's great. We said, No, that's not gonna work. (laughs) Uh. Everybody wants to send us photos of when they were twenty or thirty years younger.
3: (laughs) Well, I think I think I've been at Savvy since twenty eleven or thirteen, something like that. And we went But you never
2: changed. (laughs) Pretty much.
3: We went to Vegas and we had um, a, a corporate meeting and everybody came. And I remember we sat around one table. There were about 12 people there and I thought it was awesome. And now, you know, I look at the, and, and our, our newest member is Logan from Sioux Falls. It was great to see him. He looked thrilled in the picture to be part of the Savvy team. So it's He's been a, really- one of our younger people. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's great. It's It's really exciting to see the team grow like that. Our first question is from Mache who is challenging conventional wisdom. Go ahead
5: Mache. Hello everyone, big fan. Thank you for everything you do to make me even more fun at parties. <laughs> 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 oh, we got to add that to the list. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a fairly new private pilot and there are some things that I've been taught but never really given like a satisfying explanation for one of those things is sumping the fuel, and specifically you sump the fuel, you check it for impurities and water, and if, you, if you're satisfied the, the fuel is okay, and then you're supposed to dispose it at the designated disposal area and not put it back in the tank unless you have one of the magic uh, screen samplers that Sporty will will sell, sell you for 20 bucks. <laughs> My, The logic that I don't really see is if I just inspected the fuel and determined that it's good enough for me to fly with it, why is it bad to put it back in the... In the
2: tank. I, I've been putting it back in yeah. the tank for 55 <laughs> well, years. <Yeah. laughs> he's saying
3: he's saying without filtering it
2: though, just pouring I, I, it. I don't. Feel you've it been doing make that? any difference?
3: Uh, you, you
2: you drain it. You look at it. If it looks okay, you pour it back in. If it, it was it was in there before, if it was. If it's a got, problem, got particulate before, matter or, okay or water in it, then you probably don't want, want to pour it. it back in.
5: Yeah. No, all right, so God. that that is in fact what I've what I've been thinking and decided to start doing simply because like I could not see a reason not to, and the other question is the favorite of constant speed propellers, mm-hmm. and operating over square or you know high manifold pressure and low RPM. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know all the things about the engine. This is bad for the engine. I've I've seen all of Mike's uh, seminars on that. However one of the ground schools i've seen mentions the stress on the propeller rather than the engine it says that at very low rpm and high power settings this is stressful for the propeller and can overstress it and i'm not sure that i buy it because if you think about it if you have a cruise prop installed and takeoff, well that's exactly what you're doing Mm -hmm. this is low rpm a high high power application on the other hand a fixed pitch cruise propeller is a solid chunk of metal, whereas uh, a constant speed propeller is really a complicated mechanism with hub and everything, things that that could conceivably be overstressed. So I would really like to to ask, what can happen? Is there anything that actually can be overstressed? And if so, would what would be overstressed? If,
2: Matty, I, I need I need to back you up for a minute because I thought I heard you say that. That you heard me say in a webinar or something about the evils of running over square? Oh no, that's sorry. The exact opposite. No, yeah, it's, it's I mean the exact
5: opposite. That yeah, okay. the, that it's not bad for okay, the engine, <laughs> and that's the, <laughs> the it's old wife's tales. Yeah,
2: you know, there's nothing magic about square, and 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 you know, the if if you change all the units to metric or something, all of that goes <laughs> away. So it goes But away. you know, the way I like to think about it is. Think of the prop control kind of as a gear shift in a car. And if you're driving a car up the hill and you stay in, in high gear, eventually, you know, the engine is going to start complaining and it's going to want you to shift to a lower gear. And it's, it's kind of the same thing with the, with the constant speed prop. You want to reduce the, the RPM for, for cruise. But if you do it for climb, uh, it's going to be it's going to be kind of tough on the engine, uh, just like just like driving up a hill in in fourth gear in a sports car or something.
5: And for for that matter, would it be possible to stall the engine at super f- uh, low RPM or uh, does the no, I
2: don't, I don't, I don't think so. As you don't um, feather it, but you know, if 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 you if you get the operator's manual for your engine usually this stuff is not in the in pohs unfortunately but if you get the operator's manual for your engine from continental or lycoming as opposed to from cessna or piper it'll typically have a chart in it that shows you the acceptable operating envelope in terms of what combinations of manifold pressure and rpm are acceptable and and you know, typically for most continental engines it the, the the that envelope will extend several inches over square and for lycoming engines typically it's even more than that it can be 5 or 6 inches
5: over square what about the propeller because that's the well, that's the thing that gave me pause in that one ground school that so I I was watching
4: here's my question is i'm having difficulty seeing how there's any difference other than your The power pulses, of course, they're directly proportional to RPM. I could see something, I could make something up there, but I would really want to ask the school. They're the ones that are saying there's a problem and it overstresses. What exactly does it overstress? Because I've, I've never heard this. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've
3: never, I know but, several propeller shop owners, and I've never heard anybody say that their propellers are coming in all beaten up because people are operating. I don't, I don't
2: see how the propeller could know the difference. Now, the, the, there often are, in, in some installations, there are RPM ranges that the uh, propeller shouldn't be operated in because right. of resonance problems. Vibration, yep. But, but those are invariant as to whether the deck angle of the airplane is nose up or nose down. It's just it's it it's it, they're just rpm ranges that that should be a, you should try to to stay out of.
3: I happen to know somebody whose propeller came off an airplane because of <laughs> power pulses that would be my husband. And yeah. uh, I will say the propeller itself did not fail. The flange failed, so the, the propeller. Crankshaft. The actual yeah. crankshaft
2: flange failed.
4: And, in and in fairness yeah. to everything related to that, he was just a little bit outside of the normal envelope.
3: Yeah, but the point is, when you really abuse it, what's the first thing that failed? It was the flange and the bolts that held the crankshaft to the uh, to it the prop, a, not the internal. It
2: wasn't really the flange, was
3: it? Uh, the bolts got ripped out of the flange. Yeah. Um, or sheared. Yeah. Yeah, they, you'd, you'd
2: expect the bolts to to be the things that, that go the bolts well, that, that secure yeah, the propeller to the crankshaft. Yeah, crank but
3: shaft. the crankshaft was ruined too. I mean,
2: yeah. Anyway, well, it was, but the pro-
3: prop was okay.
2: <laughs> but it was ruined as a secondary effect because the bolts were all wiggling around. It wasn't. It it, it the the bolts are the things that that typically fail.
5: So to summarize. There isn't really anything special about constant speed props that will make them more fragile than so. fixed pitch no. props.
3: They're going to go a lot sooner from corrosion than they are from yes.
4: abuse. I think. <laughs> yeah, and Mike follows accident data for like you know the past eon since he was born. I think, and uh, there there aren't any general aviation piston engine propeller failures.
2: Oh, there have been a few accidents where the propeller departed the aircraft,
5: like like. But it days. wasn't the propeller. Fact. Yeah, like. Days, but it wasn't the yeah. propeller's
2: fault.
4: It, right. It was or the or a nick in the propeller. We've recovered some airplanes in the past where a nick in the pre- propeller would cause a crack and a chunk of it would separate. But never because the propeller was overstressed. Per Not se. Not where it. it yeah, years, years ago. The years
2: ago, I got to I got to see a video that was a a stop action video of a propeller being run up in a test cell at various RPMs. And it was, um, it was a very profound experience because the blades bend to a degree that you wouldn't, you couldn't even imagine. And, and at some RPMs that they, they're, they're like standing waves on the, on the blades and stuff. And when you see how much uh, the blades flex, you never look at a neck the same way again. <laughs> yeah, right.
5: <laughs> Get that taken care of right away. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I I think that that really confirms what I suspected that there shouldn't be anything magical about constant speed props being more prone. But I wanted to confirm, and I've been operating with with the general idea if I'm in cruise, low low RPM is better for everyone.
2: Sure. Yep. You know, you're doing well. It's often makes a lot of sense to do what I think you're doing, which is to filter the stuff you are told with a, with a healthy dose of
5: common sense. And in
3: all walks of life, <laughs> not just yeah. aviation. I think it's true in
5: all branches of <laughs> yes. aviation since I started skydiving before I started flying powered planes. And the same kind of like my instructor told my instructor, and we've, yeah. been, we've been trying to, to figure out why they said that for 50 years, and nobody right. quite knows, but, but you're going to die if you do this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Good. It's good to question. Good job. <laughs> Well we've all, we've
2: all had to unlearn a lot of the stuff that our instructors taught us. <laughs> well,
3: great question. Great question, Mashe, and thank you so much for dialing in. It's
5: um, nice to meet you. Absolutely. It's my, yeah. my pleasure. Take care. We'll see you. Take care.
3: Our next question is from George, who is digging deep on lapping valves. Go ahead, George. All right,
1: and thank you for having me on. Uh, Yeah, I have a plane that uh, has some uh, valve issues. Uh, I've got six cylinders, an 0470R. One of the cylinders is fine. The other five uh, all have varying levels of green on them. And I was told that four of those cylinders could probably be uh, lapped in place, but the fifth one was uh, was going to need to be pulled. And so my question is, I'm probably going to try lapping all five of them and just see what happens. But I'm trying to determine uh, what the risk is of flying with a valve that has at one time been green. I've read articles that say they sometimes revert back. And others that uh, green means stop. And so I'm just trying to get a feel for the actual risk involved of uh, breakage of a valve once it's turned green. And if anybody knows what exactly is happening with the metallurgy when uh, when a valve turns green, that's kind of my basic uh, you know uh, this, focus whole, this question. whole
2: green thing has become the source of massive confusion since. Uh, My good buddy Adrian Eichhorn introduced this green mean stop notion because there's two different kinds of green. (laughs) There are green deposits, which are perfectly normal and perfectly okay, And there's where the metal itself is turning green. And the only way you ever would see the metal itself turning green is if the valve got so hot that all the deposits have been burned off and you're looking at just bare valve metal. And if the metal itself is turning green, that's that seems to be indicative of the fact that the alloy is is changing, but but I am not sufficiently knowledgeable of metallurgy to tell you exactly where the green is coming from. I suspect it's some sort of copper coming out of the I
3: couldn't find it on the I, internet. I just
2: I, I just don't know. But but most of the green you see is, is actually green deposits, which is, is perfectly normal, doesn't mean anything. A lot of this stuff came back from the, the day when the early days of, of borescoping cylinders when we didn't have borescopes with articulating tips. And really all we could do is look at the face of the valve and go by the colors on the face of the valve and see if they were symmetrical or asymmetrical. And nowadays, where we can actually get the camera positioned between the valve and the seat and and really look at the ceiling surfaces of the valve and the seat, we don't have to rely quite as much on, on what the color pattern is. We can actually take a look at the ceiling surfaces and see whether there's significant metal erosion or not. As long as there's not a lot of metal erosion, the, the valve is a reasonable candidate for lapping. And, you know, my theory is that unless the, the valve is an obvious train wreck, it always makes sense to try lapping it. I I learned the hard way when I started lapping valves myself that usually when the, the, when you, the first time you, you do valve lapping, you don't do it aggressively enough you you have to do it quite aggressively you have to do multiple cycles you're of, not going to hurt it don't be shy and 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 keep doing it until you get a, a a nice clean contact line on on the on the the valve sealing surface all the way around the circumference but if you lap the valve sufficiently aggressively to get uh, to reestablish a good contact surface then typically, whatever color anomaly you you saw on the face of the valve will will resolve in fifteen or twenty five hours. So of the metal
3: actually changes color if it's running cooler. Mike, is that what you're saying?
2: No, it, it seems to run it it seems to to change color if it's running extremely hot.
3: Yeah. So what I'm saying, though, is so it ran hot. You got a green asymmetric valve face. You do the lapping and then you run it and put it back in service and you're saying the green
2: will go away. Well, again, it depends on what kind of green it is. Colleen. Well, if, the metal green as if, opposed if, to the if, deposits green. If the valve has gotten so badly burned that you're looking at bare metal and it's turning green, then it's it's likely not a viable candidate for lapping you don't want to go strictly on the color you you want to you you want to take a look at the at the ceiling surface and one of the nice things about lapping is you know when you when you when you remove the rocker and the valve springs and can manipulate the valve now now you can spin it all the way around look at every bit of it with a borescope when you're looking at it During a normal borescope inspection, you can only see like half of it. But once you've taken the valve springs off and you can spin the valve around, you get to you get see everything. And and as long as you're not seeing you know either major metal erosion or major warping of the valve, it's probably a good candidate to be lapped. So far, all the ones
4: that we've lapped, which are quite a few, have been successful. But we have never lapped any when the metal has turned green we just i don't even bother because we know that that metal according to adrian's chart uh has gotten to 1650 degrees and i i think it's probably not savable so i don't bother even trying but what we do do is borescope at every opportunity certainly at every annual and you normally can catch these before they ever turn green. It doesn't take much effort to prevent the issue instead of trying to save the issue.
2: Yeah, we, we, unfortunately, most of the shops that, that, that I've dealt with, unless we try to pound into their head otherwise, will we'll typically not even look at, a, at the cylinder with a borescope unless the compression is low. Which or is the really bass.
3: Client asks. You know? yeah
2: we we want to we want to look at every cylinder every time, and, and basically any time a top spark plug is out, it it's, it's, it, it's, it's almost criminal not to stick a borescope in the hole and take a look. It takes hardly any time to do it. That does
3: go against your recommendation that unless it's an annual inspection, you don't like fishing expeditions on your plane. But this is different because this is preventative maintenance.
2: No, this is different because the earlier we can catch a valve, and, and very frequently what happens is the rotator stops rotating. And then the valve starts developing an asymmetrical signature. And if we can catch that early then then lapping is always going to be effective. It's it's only if it if it if it goes long enough that the valve starts to get into significant metallurgical distress that we'll wind up having to pull a cylinder. So And pulling spark plugs is like
4: almost one of the least invasive things you can possibly do. I'm more concerned about people changing oil than I am changing spark plugs. If you, if you do something wrong with the spark plugs, it'll engine run may bad. run rough <laughs> and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't if run out of oil. To, yeah, it doesn't so run out of oil. It's, it's still running. <laughs>
1: yeah. When you're doing the, uh, the aggressive valve lapping, uh, do you have to worry about, uh, I heard this on one of your podcasts, something about valve seat recession? Are you mm-hmm. likely to grind enough out that that would make a difference? Oh,
2: that'd no. be really tough. No. Uh, with the, valve the, grinding the, amount, compound, the amount of metal that you're taking away is, is, is minute. You're mostly taking deposits off
4: of the valve yeah. or off of the seat. Not when, metal, but you know, deposits. Yeah, when we yeah. see, uh, sometimes we'll see, we call it a, a waterfall effect on the seat where it's been leaking in one spot for a while, and that actually erodes the seat. When we see that, it's not likely that we can get that out with valve grinding compound. We work and work and work, and it it just doesn't go away, and that's, you're not gonna fix that. But short of that, almost everything is, you're just cleaning it up. There's very little actually cutting
2: going on. But it's almost always worth a try. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's fun to do. We we always wanna pull cylinders as a last resort. We wanna try our best to rescue the cylinder without having to pull it
1: off. Well, I appreciate all that good advice because uh, the engine does run great and I'd like to save it. I okay. listened to a bunch of your podcasts driving down here to Florida and I learned a lot.
3: Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm uh, getting ready to build my own air cam and uh, oh, right. I might be able oh, to wow. log the hours and become an A&P. So yeah. yeah, that-
3: that'd be great. Yeah.
1: Jumping
4: over very to the cool. dark
1: side. Go for it. Rotax. rooting yeah. for you.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, glad you came back, George. All right. Thanks for the question. Bye-bye. All
0: right, it's time for some letters. Uh, I had a couple of good ones this month. Paul, this, I'm going to give you a chance, first of all, to clarify something that I think I know what you meant, but uh, just in case for anybody else.
4: Letter to the editor. That guy said something stupid. Okay.
0: Yeah, all right. So this is from Andy. He says, In the most recent episode of Ask the ANPs, I was confused by something Paul said at the very end. But oh, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> it was something to the effect of, quote, if you're really close to the ground, you won't have the engine leaned. Then he said, which I don't remember you saying, but I'll take his word for it. Close to the
4: ground.
0: He says, I'm very often leaned when close to the ground. One circumstance is in, in which this occurs is on takeoff and landing. It fields over 5,000. Okay. The other is anytime I'm at, quote, cruise power, which is at or below 75% with a Lycoming or 65% with a Continental. This can occur in any altitude if the power is pulled back sufficiently. I spend a lot of time cruising close to the ground, say 50 to 200 feet AGL and below oh, 2,000 not. MSL. I hope he's a seaplane pilot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, or my,
4: <laughs> a,
3: pipeline patrol. A pipeline, <laughs> yeah, patrol, yeah. pipeline
0: patrol, yeah. My usual setting is 22 inches, 2200 RPM, so squared. Uh, since I'm operating at less than 75% power, I'm leaned. What am I missing?
4: I, no, I, I think the context was not that. And I don't remember the context at you're all. You're probably talking about rich on takeoff, full rich. Yeah, maybe full rich or takeoff. I, I don't or know. Typical, I don't remember. I live at 411 feet. So, you know, it's always full rich for takeoff. But absolutely, if you're at high altitude, if you're in Denver or Front Range, somewhere like that, you're going to you're gonna have to lean for takeoff. And,
2: unless you're, turbochar. unless you're turbocharged. Unless you're turbocharged. case yeah, you don't.
4: Exactly. So, you know, you, you always have to quantify or qualify some of the things that that are said. And if you're cruising at any altitude, now Continental way back in the day said no leaning before below 5,000 feet. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's common in <laughs> a lot of like 70 Eras airplanes in the
4: yes. POH. And then they upgraded that to no leaning below 3,000 feet instead of just saying no leaning below or above a certain power setting, which would have been a way better way to put it, but people weren't, Anyway, I think they were just trying to simplify life. So I would say I probably intended if you're at power, at full power, or something like that, you wouldn't want to be lean. And most people will not lean at takeoff. And most people will go to full rich just before landing. I don't do that. but I don't do that. Uh, so, But there are a lot of people that they're concerned about the go around and missing the mixture knob. And that's perfectly fine,
2: you know. Most of them do it because that's what the POH says to do, and that's because the POH was written by a lawyer and not by an (laughs) aeronautical engineer. (laughs) Right.
4: Yeah. So, yeah, I I don't know the context of what I said, but uh, he's absolutely right.
2: Uh, in all those situations, you definitely want to lean the engine. Yeah, you got, we, Paul, you got to be really careful about you, what you say because somebody's going to call you on it. There I are know. listening <laughs> out there,
3: Paul. But yeah. just think,
4: if if all three listeners out there didn't listen that close, we wouldn't have cool letters to read. <laughs> That's right.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, there's proof we have more than three because they're different, unless they're writing in from, you know, their friends' emails or something. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty devious. Uh, all right, so um, this one. This is a good one. Um, he says, I just listened to the November 1st podcast. Sorry, Paul. Paul knew, said oh, that the gosh. valves can stick open, closed, or anywhere in between. If that's true, what Paul said is that, uh, what Paul didn't say, excuse me, is that you'll get a bent pushrod on everything other than a wide open valve. Think about it. If a valve is jammed shut and the cam via the pushrod says open, something bad is going to happen. Something like this.
4: Oh, oh yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. That's
0: that's pretty normal. That's not the only
4: (laughs) failure, though. I've had um, uh, one that I show in my engine monitor class where it was a Lycoming engine. The valve stuck not fully closed. It was probably a quarter of the way open, and it busted the – it was on a Lycoming, and it busted the ears off the – Casting for the cylinder on the, the valve hold the cutter? rocker shaft. Yeah. Okay. And the push rod was perfectly straight. Oh, interesting. A bent push rod is the more common failure mode.
0: Yeah. Here oh, it is there you the go. Engine. That's exactly oh, yeah. what it looks like.
3: Nice. Wow. Yeah. wow. yeah.
0: So this is Stephen, by the way, and um, so he sent easy troubleshooting there. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> Look at the oil so, at the uh, <laughs> at the uh, engine
0: block. Yeah. A number of photos there. It is off. So,
3: wow, that's and, really um, interesting to see.
0: Yeah, and you can see in this one the imprint. The Is valve there, strike.
3: Oh yeah. yeah, I can see the nice round yep. circle in the uh, eleven on o'clock yeah. position. On, yeah.
4: on the engine that that we had happen this—that's a parallel a valve valve ago. engine. It's not a smile. It's right. a Right. Yeah, it's a parallel face. valve. Interesting. Yeah. So they're square <laughs> to the piston. Yep, they are. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: On mine, there was no valve strike. It wasn't. It wasn't stuck open enough to to get right. wow. valve strike. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Mike. I know you. You said it's embarrassing to run out of oil before fuel, and this it <laughs> almost happened to him. He did make it, though. Yeah, that's an R one eighty two.
3: Look at it all over the tire.
0: Yeah, yeah. He said some interesting things from the event. The engine ran surprisingly well on five cylinders. There was not a lot of vibration. Uh, there was a distinct lack of power. He said. So on the
4: plane that that we had, a customer is twenty four hundred hours or so, and. um they had had several events where the valve had stuck over the last six months, but assumed it was a bad EGT indication. They never checked the, e- the CHT, and never called their mechanic to ask what the problem was. They just figured, well, we'll take care of it at annual. And then this cylinder came apart, and we looked at the data. It was a G1000-equipped airplane, and we could see it came apart on the takeoff roll and they flew three hours
3: holy cow
4: <laughs> and said the engine it you know it had it was less power the slower climb they weren't going as fast but you know didn't really notice any vibration wow uh, hey and they're guys flying on on three the, cylind- the I mean cylinders the plane is
3: talking to you listen to it yeah well that's the <laughs> whole point
4: of that's what i that's why i put it in my presentation it's like you you got to be paying attention. Yeah.
2: Well, it is worth noting that that six-cylinder engines do a lot better on five cylinders than four-cylinder <laughs> engines <laughs> do on three cylinders. So that's yes.
3: simple math. Let's yeah. think about that.
4: And especially <laughs> these engines; these are five hundred and forty cubic inch engines, only putting out two hundred and thirty or two hundred and thirty-five yeah, horsepower. They're, they're derated. They are so derated. I mean, the same the same size, not the same engine, but the same size engine can put out easily 350 horsepower. Right, you're you're talking about the the R182? The R182 and the Restart 182s both use a parallel valve
2: 540. Right, which is is actually a 260 horsepower engine.
4: 260, normally both of them derated, one to 230 and the other one to
2: 235. Yeah, so those are are like fabulous candidates for TBO busting because they're just loafing along.
4: That's right. But you do have to pay attention to valve sticking. Because the lycomings.
2: like yep. And Yep. That's, that's true about yeah. like homings. Yep. And the hope is that a lot of that will go away when With we start unleaded using gas. unleaded um, avgas. Yeah. And synthetic oils. If they ever bring back synthetic
4: oils. <laughs> yeah. They may have been scared away.
3: Our next question is from Doug, who is trying to spread the leaning gospel. Go ahead, Doug.
6: <laughs> Happy New Year from Idaho. Uh, I'm a CFI out here at Idaho. i actually been following uh, Mike Bush for about 20 years. I was with the Cesta Pilots Association uh-huh. and used to read his articles. Uh, uh-huh. And that's what got me started on uh, getting an engine analyzer in my 182. I had a oh, uh, oh, good a T for model for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just sold it. It's out in, uh, uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania now, but anyway, I'm, uh, flying, actually giving uh, instrument instruction to, uh, a pilot and, uh, we are on an IFR flight plan in a 182 that's, uh, owned by, uh, flight service, uh, used to be a flight school out of Buell, Idaho, small airport here in Idaho. And, uh, as we were, uh, on top uh, i just didn't like the way that the uh the engine was sounding and he was uh adamant about running uh the engine 100 degrees rich peak and he said that's where the owner of the airplane is a flight instructor and he's also an ia and he wanted him flying it at 100 degrees rich peak and we're up uh about 11,000 feet and i said uh <laughs> this engine just is not running very well. And so I says, I think you need to lean it up a little bit. And and we leaned it a little bit and it started running better. And we had a discussion after we got done with that flight. And he said, well, he said, uh, you need to go on and, and look at Mike Bush's uh, webinars about staying out of the red box. And I kind of knew what the red box was, uh, but. Fast forward uh to recently, it I'm almost getting the impression uh from your guys' show here that the red box maybe isn't as important at altitude as what these guys are thinking it is, because granted the 0470 carbureted 0470s are very uh poor fuel distributions, which I'm preaching to the choir here, I know. But uh I have tried to fly my 182 uh, Lena Peak with my engine analyzer, and I've had mixed luck with it. But I kind of like the advice that I saw on your show a while back about saying, you know what, lean that thing up and then bring it in till it just starts to smooth and leave it mm-hmm. there, especially mm-hmm. above 8,000 feet. Screw and that's what always. I told him. And we started flying it that way at altitude, and the airplane was real happy. as fuel consumption yeah. went down. And his uh, cylinder head temperatures uh, were a little cooler and and went that route. So my question uh, to you guys is uh, now that you've got a lot of these uh, newer pilots uh, with the webinars and, t- and uh, concerned about staying out of the red box, especially in a 182 uh, carbureted that doesn't have very good fuel distribution, and I learned all your tricks, uh, Mike, including uh, back in that throttle off just a touch so that butterfly's cocked in there a little bit and kind of roughs up that air for better fuel distribution. And I teach that uh, wholeheartedly now, and and I think that's good advice. So firewall on the airplane is firewall and, and then just back a hair, you know, because you get a little peak of RPM, power, manifold pressure, RPM, by getting that butterfly valve kind of at an angle there and mixing up that air. So my question is: Is uh, what's the best advice to give these guys? I, I kind of my student, my IFR student, was telling me that. Well, the owner of the airplane wants it ran this way, and I said, Well, we need to run it the way the owner wants it. But I I think that's be- not really good. I think we're running it too rich, and and it definitely smoothed up. I think at altitude, even on the carbureted 0470s, I think the your advice on on uh, getting it rough, and then just smoothing it up and i and I saw your show just a while back that even running at Lena Peak, you might get a little stumble once in a while and not be concerned about that at altitude and I was glad to hear that because flying over the mountains and uh getting that little stumble, I thought I didn't like that and and I actually thought, man, do I really want to be running lena peak and when I heard it on your show here that that's not really a concern. It made me feel a lot better. So what's your guys' take on that? I'm I'm just looking, want to make sure that I'm leading my students in the right direction on this. uh, Lean a peak, rich a peak, staying out of the red box, all that business.
2: I'm not sure I being accurately quoted as far as that stumbles are okay. I don't think I ever said that, but what I probably said, which somehow got mangled was that, Running lean a peak is always a little bit rougher than running rich a peak because of cycle-to-cycle variation, which which increases the leaner the mixture is. But let me ask a, a quick question. The airplane that you were flying with the student, a rental airplane, I guess, what kind of instrumentation did it have? Did it have an engine monitor? What were you looking at?
6: He did have an engine monitor. It was one of the old schools. I can't remember if it was, I
1: think it was a JPI.
2: Okay. But but you could see CHTs and EGTs on each of the cylinders. Yes. Okay. So the red box that we can use as pilots, as opposed to the theoretical red box that you might use in a test cell, we have to operate the engines based on the data that we have available. So the, the, pretty much the best we can do is to define the red box by CHT. And, you know, my general rule for Continentals is we don't want the CHTs to, to be above 400 degrees. I mean, there's nothing super magic about that number. It could be 405 or it could be 395, but, but we, we really don't. Want to see a four at the front of the c- cylinder head temperature? So as long as 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 long as we're not seeing fours, you, you're not in the red box. Just keep it that simple. And I pretty well guarantee in 182, if you're up above 8,000 feet, you're not going to see any fours. You know, you, your big biggest concern is are you seeing twos? Because <laughs> uh, it's a pretty well cooled engine. So uh, you know, I I I think. Either the owner of the airplane's advice is being misconstrued, or it's not very good advice. And you know, I—it certainly is a struggle. It's a rental airplane; you kind of don't want to do something different than what the owner of the airplane asks you to do. But on the other hand, as pilot in command, you're sort of obligated to to keep the engine happy, and it was clearly unhappy. So I, you know, I. Think clearly. You are doing the right thing. And in a, in a 182, anytime you're at cruise power or less, leaning to the onset of roughness and richening just barely enough for the roughness to go away is a is a, is a good procedure. It, it, in the 182, because the mixture distribution is not very good, you know you're very likely to have a, a couple of cylinders slightly richer peak and a couple of cylinders slightly lean a peak when you do that, but as long as the cylinder head temperatures are okay, it's it's all right.
3: With the CHTs, Mike, one thing that worries me is detonation when it happens is a very rapid increase. And so you might start below 400, but if you were in the red box and in a danger area, a moment of inattention,
2: and next thing you know, it's like accelerating through 420. Right, and that's, that's why I, I, I always think it's super important for an engine monitor to have Programmable alarms that go off and alert you if the cylinder had if a cylinder head temperature starts to run away and unfortunately a lot of the the engine monitors that are certified for primary replacement don't give you the option of setting the alarms and, and I think that's that's a a, a very serious loss because I think that's one of the most important functions of an engine monitor is to is to provide alarms when when something abnormal occurs, because as you say, if if you get into detonation or even worse, if you get into pre-ignition, which is a thing that happens very super rapidly, you typically will have a minute or so to save the engine before things start to melt.
3: Yeah, and if you're IFR, you're busy and you might yeah, not and catch it.
2: Nobody's staring at that thing. You're you're you know you're focused on the you're, you're focused on the flight instruments.
6: And so, so, you know, the owner of the airplane uh, is a friend of mine. He's a CFI, and, and I did. I had a chat with him when I got back, and he was fine with with what I had
5: told him. Oh,
6: to. yeah, so good. it's not like we're flying the airplane inconsistent with what he wants. He, he understood totally. I said it just was running too rich up there.
4: Well, something else that people don't really put their heads around is that the, the red box— gets smaller as the power output goes down. Yeah. And, and in a you, normally aspirated engine, feet, there is the, higher, yeah, the higher you go, the smaller the power output. So at, at 8,000 feet, the red box doesn't even exist. And so leaning to 100 degrees rich a peak, so you can fly it at a peak. My airplane, and I'm, I'm running a, a 550, uh, if I'm at 8,000 feet, if I'm at 40 degrees lean a peak, which I don't think in terms of degrees from peak, but I'd go mostly by fuel flow. But if I'm that lean, I'm not ever going to get there. So I tend to <laughs> run at, at <laughs> I tend to run at peak or, you know, if I'm at eleven thousand feet, I will often lean with the airspeed. And I will tweak it around. I've kind of find out where the airplane goes fastest. I'm only developing like 60% power. There's no red box. And I'm just gonna get the best power, best efficiency, whatever I wanna do. So yeah, as as you climb, you can still do hundred degrees Rich a peak, but that target
2: is gonna move a little bit for you. Yeah. Yeah. I See, love that's, flying that's, around. That's the difference between Paul and me because Paul wants to get there fast. I'm flying this twin that's, that's, yeah. that's sucking 30 <laughs> gallons Mike, an Mike hour. Is, Mike is and G- I'm, I'm I'm leaning from the nautical miles per gallon readout yeah. on my yeah. totalizer <laughs> to try to get that number as low as I can.
3: <laughs> but, or, you know, we're we're all about numbers on the show. We love promoting engine monitors and boxes, and we're all kind of analytic types. But when I go flying with my husband. I have it all analytically leaned out, and then he says it sounds a little rough, and he goes and yeah. he starts messing. Yeah. <laughs> and he's right; it does sound better. So yeah. there is something to be said for using using your butt to fly, and feeling you know, looking at the performance of the aircraft just like you did. That's
2: engines engines great. talk; they're very good at talking. You
4: I have fly to listen
2: with, to them. With the onset of uh,
4: fancy headsets, I find that I don't hear things as well, and I didn't realize it. But I started flying with my shoes off, and I, I, I got, not because of the smell, but I got called out for it one time a few years ago. And, and I found that you can feel it, uh, especially on a metal airplane. I don't feel it so much in the Cirrus, but on a 210, you can feel that. The, the muffler is right there near your feet, and you can feel those pulses. And when it misses, I feel it in my feet. I do too. And
3: the Cardinal, I I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah.
4: It's an interesting, interesting thing. So your intuition
3: is right. Doug. Don't fly with your shoes off in Idaho though. That sounds
2: really cold. No, that's not
6: good. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree with and, Paul. And, and, I actually feel the airplane yeah. when it's not happy.
2: And don't, don't lean so much that it stumbles.
6: <laughs> well, stumble might've been a bad word, Mike, because it, that it's just kind of a hesitation. And you know, mm-hmm. When you're over in the middle of the mountains and in the wintertime and a single (laughs) engineer your mind starts playing games on you. And Mm -hmm. I go, Yeah, I want I I just want things to sound really natural continuously.
4: Yeah, I I had a Comanche that was solar powered. Well, I I know because when the sun went down, it started running terrible. (laughs) And so I quit flying at night. It's just every time all kinds of weird noises and vibrations would start happening. So I just I decided I wasn't going to fly it at night anymore. That's great, Paul. <laughs>
3: <laughs> On that note, <laughs> thank you, thank you for the great question, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Well, hey, yeah. you
4: guys, you guys
6: answered it totally, uh, and and I was really happy to hear what you
3: had to say. Yeah, so, you're doing God's the work, call, up Doug. There. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, that's it for this episode. Hopefully we got a few things right this time. Let us know and keep sending us your tricky questions. You can email them to podcasts at aopa.org.
4: See you next time. Bye-bye, everybody.